0: Welcome to another episode of Up to. 8 years ago, Up to started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives and in doing so, have found there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host as always is Adam Kaufman and our guest today is Brigadier General Laura Lenderman. Right now, you're listening to The Up to Podcast. We'll be right back. During the first season of The Up to
1: Podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make, happily, is to partner with Vivid Front, a full-service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals, and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc. Magazine Top 5,000 Fastest Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent. They're known for their creativity. They're known for their culture, a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show check out vividfront.com, or you can email me and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to the Up To Podcast. Here's your host, Adam Kaufman. Our guest today is United States Air Force
1: Brigadier General, Laura Lenderman. Now we've been fortunate to have some really accomplished leaders on the Up to Podcast in the past. We've had a Heisman Trophy winner. We've had the world's most requested heart surgeon. We've had CEOs of large public companies. We've had many super successful entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. But I think it's safe to say that our guest today has more responsibility and has accomplished more at a young age, I'll add, than any of our tremendous prior guests. Laura is currently commander of the 502nd Air Base Wing and Joint Base San Antonio, Texas which unifies 11 geographically distinct locations, including Joint Base Fort Sam Houston, Joint Base Lackland, Joint Base Randolph, and Camp Bullis. The 8,000-person, 502nd Airborne Wing executes 49 installation support functions to enable the largest joint base in the Department of Defense, consisting of 266 mission partners, 80,000 full-time personnel, in a local community of more than 250,000 retirees. Wow. The 502nd also manages and provides oversight for major projects, facilities, and infrastructure worth $37 billion annually. She graduated from Duke University in the Air Force ROTC program there. She's earned an MBA from George Washington University. She's also been a National Security Fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School. She's flown thousands of hours for the US Air Force and she's been stationed abroad, as well as domestically. She was also assigned to the Joint Chiefs of Staff working at the Pentagon for some time. Laura, welcome to Up To.
2: Hello, Adam. It's so good to see you.
1: Thanks for being here, and I'm going to try not to call you Laura. General Lenderman is the proper (laughs) title. I'm sorry for that, but we're really thrilled to have you. And I think you told me this is your first ever podcast?
2: It's my very first podcast.
1: Well, welcome. We love that. We're just thrilled to be able to get a little bit of your brain and your heart uh, during the end of a busy day. What have you been up to?
2: First of all, can I say thank you, Adam, for, gosh, 30, 40, almost 40 years of friendship. You know, being in the Air Force and being an Air Force uh, child growing up, it's hard to maintain those friendships, but Mm. I think you are the longest friendship that I have. Wow. So I want to thank you for that.
1: The feeling is mutual.
2: It's been fun to watch you grow in all the things that you and your family are able to do today to help our communities and inspire others.
1: Thank you. We're here to talk about you, so that's enough, <laughs> but, but you're very kind. But see, Let's th-
2: interview you.
1: The theme of this show, all the shows, is leaders who are as humble as they are successful, and you starting off by commending me epitomizes how humble you are. It's unbelievable that that's, that's what you start with. But thank you. And now to you, what have you been up to?
2: Well, you described what, what I'm doing today as the commander of Joint Base San Antonio. And like the rest of the nation, we've been really responding to the COVID-19 crisis. And it it came to us in San Antonio early in the process because we were one of the installation's chosen Uh, to take care of our American citizens that were being evacuated from Wuhan, uh, China. We had the whole month of February where we were taking care of uh, Americans that were evacuated, first from China and then from the Princess Cruise Lines. And that was not a popular decision from our community's point of view outside of the fence line because if members of Wuhan's uh, province or the cruise ship were positive for covid They were taken into the city and cared for at a civilian hospital versus military.
1: So who decides that? Was that like a CDC decision or a military decision or a San Antonio decision?
2: That was actually at the federal level. So a CDC and Department of Health and Human Services had the lead. Part of that agreement was that we would provide the lodging facilities, but not the medical response. Hmm. But what it ended up doing was it created an opportunity for us to learn from the CDC and the DHHS, how to take care of people that do test positive, how to make sure that we have these strict protocols for safety mm-hmm. in terms of quarantine and isolation. So that in March, when it became um, a, a national issue, and it got to the, the city um, confines of our city, then we were able to pick up and, and run with it because we had a lot of practice uh, over mm. the last uh, four or five weeks.
1: You said early March and I saw you, I think on March 4th in San Antonio, yes. you and your husband, that was when it was really becoming more known that this may become a national, let's close things down situation. But you probably knew that before we did.
2: I don't know if we did or not, honestly. I think we were all learning as a as a department of defense and as a civilian uh, community and I think we had to make our decisions a little bit sooner than later because of our training population here. And it's, it's right. like a college. So you have people that are living and eating and uh, sleeping near each other. And um, in order to keep the training pipeline safe, we had to make some tough decisions early on um, that started to close down the base a little sooner than the rest of the city. Mm. But quickly... The city made some very important decisions, and I think they were pretty far out in front in terms of national response. And um, we have such a great medical community here. Um, There's Metro Health that we're tied into from the installation point of view. And together with all the experts, they they made some tough choices early on that really protected this Mm -hmm, population. mm -hmm.
1: I should add that you're coming to us today from San Antonio, so I appreciate you doing this not in person. Uh, We're grateful for that. You've described what everyone in America has gone through. Your life drastically changed when COVID came uh, to our shores. Can you give us a sense, maybe before that, what what's the life of a Air Force general like?
2: Prior to a, a worldwide pandemic... Um,
1: if you can remember...
2: My mom and I were just talking about that today, like the days run into each other, and um, we wake up and it's June 3rd. Mm-hmm. I'd say before the pandemic... Every job's unique, and every job uh, presents an opportunity uh, to learn and grow. And I would say this job has certainly given me lots of opportunities to learn and grow, (laughs) Um, sometimes uh, in an emergency crisis situation. And this is by far the toughest job I've ever had. It's the biggest job I've ever had.
1: What made it so tough? The fact that it was this large and this much responsibility?
2: Yes. Those are two big factors. And As the installation commander, it's comparable to being the mayor of the city, but you're actually the mayor of a city that's not connected necessarily by fence lines.
1: But the cool part is, unlike a city, everyone has to listen to what you say in your particular city (laughs) where you're mayor. They have to say, yes, ma'am, and salute you. Most cities struggle with getting consensus on anything. So I'm not belittling how challenging it is, but at least there's that... Respect for authority, right?
2: You're right. There are challenges here that are um, not as difficult. I can order them to wear their masks. And,
1: and they have to listen.
2: But on an installation like this, there are a lot of commanders. So that's one of the challenging parts of it is that I'm, I'm not the commander of everyone here. I'm the commander of 8,000 of the 80,000 people. Mm-hmm. And so... There's a responsibility there to take care of 80,000 people. So you have the responsibility, but maybe not necessarily all the authorities.
1: Another year or two, you'll be in charge of everything.
2: (laughs) But it comes down to relationships. Um, When you're in an environment like this, coming into it with the perspective that you're not in charge of everybody and your job is to take care of everyone, but also build a trusting, transparent relationship so that they do know that you have their best interests in mind and you are being proactive Uh, Whatever the issue.
1: So this is, like you said, like the perils of being a city mayor. I mean, the acts of God and other types of problems. All of that. I um, am listening to you talk about the importance of relationships in your role. And I just think that uh, I'm in the relationships business myself. And I think the two key components of good leadership are, one, relationships, and two, being a good listener. Do you have to uh, spend much time listening?
2: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Or is Adam. everyone
1: always listening to you?
2: I, well, I hope they listen to me at times when it's appropriate. But I, I would say listening is one of, um, if you were asking me uh, my leadership philosophy, listening's number one. There's actually three L's. So if you, you know me long enough that those are my initials, Laura Lee Linderman. So I can remember it easily. <laughs> right. So listening. And to your point, you know, it's not just listening with your ears, but listening for all the body language changes, uh, looking in their eyes. You can see so much by people, just how they answer your, how are you doing today? And we get an opportunity to do that many times a day. Um, And that's for the people that work for me and the people that I work for, um, all the mission partners here, um, listening to what's important to them, um, understanding their priorities, and then following up on our promises is critical here for success
1: being a woman or man of your word very important following up on everything you say you're going to do i believe that there are four key points of relationships and one of them is always do what you say you're going to do and don't do any empty talk where you just say yeah i'll call you next week and then not call the person next week
2: we call that the say do gap and you try to eliminate that
1: i like that the say do gap that's good Okay, so time out. I realize here that we didn't get to the second and third L. So I followed up with General Lenderman and she was kind enough to leave me this voice message.
3: Hi, Adam. It's Laura. Um, The other day we were talking about the three L's. We talked about the first L, which is listen, but we didn't get a chance to talk about the next two. And I wanted to follow up with you. And the second L is love. And as a leader, and even more so as a senior leader, I find that this quality is so important uh, just to love the individuals in your organization and and to love your organization. And uh, to me, that's just, you know, wrapping your arms around everybody, especially in the good times and celebrating uh, with them. But it's also important when things are, you know, not going so great. And sometimes that's tough love. And you have to really hold people accountable and to the point that you love them so much that you want them to improve and you want them to be their best selves. But you also love the organization so much that you have to make some of those tough decisions uh, that are for the best of the organization. And usually those are for the, the good of the individual as well. Um, the, the third L is lift up. And for me, it's about being positive and being a positive leader. And it's not a Pollyanna-type leadership. It's more really knowing, true, deep in your heart that things are going to be okay. And um, this last year and and last two years in my, my command tour here, we've been faced with some of the most challenging times that this organization has ever faced. And it was just one right after the other. And these weren't local conditions, they were pretty much national news making um, issues. Uh, but with each time, you know, we met them head on and we met them with the people uh, around us and we, we listened to everybody in the room. We got the best ideas out on the table. We loved the folks even when they might have made a mistake or, or had a misstep. And then we came to each problem with a whole lot of energy and positive uh, mental attitude and going towards it as a group knowing that we're, we're gonna get through this together. And we see it today with the COVID crisis that we truly are in this together as a small community, as a city, as a nation. And there's so much strength and power in that that collective um, coming together for good. And so with that, I just wanted to leave you all with, with those three L's. If they're helpful to folks, I hope they are. Uh, I know they've helped me over the last couple of years, um, especially as a senior leader. But with that, thanks a lot, Adam. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Okay, now back to real time, the actual interview. I want to go back a little bit in time. You've always been a leader since I've known you. You said I'm one of your older friends. And ever since I've known you, you've been a leader, you know, class president. I hope I don't embarrass you by saying that. Uh, captain of your softball team, captain of cheerleading, et cetera, et cetera, homecoming queen. Do you think that leadership is something one is born with? Or could that be learned over time? I know in the military, they do send soldiers and pilots like you to different levels of leadership school. But are these innate skills that we're just born with? Or do you think they can be taught?
2: I think it's both. I have leaders in my life that are just natural leaders. I'm married to one. But then there's the wonderful part about the military is you grow into your leadership. And you become a better leader over time. So you you, think it
1: is possible to become a better leader?
2: Oh, gosh. Absolutely, 100%. We see it all the time in the military where folks start off getting a little bit slower start, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but just because this is their first opportunity. They'd never had a a chance to be a leader, and then someone believes in them, gives them opportunities, puts them through training, and they're the ones that I love. I'll call them the late bloomers, but they're not necessarily late bloomers. They're just developing at a different time.
1: But, you know, I feel like you were perhaps born, I I believe in the born leader theory, because you didn't have military training when you became class president or some of those other titles that I already mentioned. So those, I think, are skills one is born with or one is not born with.
2: There's people that are inclined to take charge, and they could do it in a very quiet way, or they could do it in a you know, more follow me, take the hill kind of way. Right. And you and I, we have friends that fall into all those categories. For sure. And I think what you're describing is, um, you know, I think about my sister and I, how we grew up in the same household. We had the same parents. We ate the same dinner. uh, We played on the same softball team. uh, But we have very different adult lives. And we took very different paths. And so that is to your point, I think, where I was born one way and she was born another way. All these extenuating circumstances didn't necessarily... Uh, change us to become more similar in that area. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think for me, it was um, a natural stubbornness, if you will, <laughs> and trying to always challenge myself and take the harder road mm-hmm. on purpose. And I was going
1: to ask you about that. Like, did you set goals or do you just always try to be the best you can be? Or do you have really specific goals that you set for yourself? And I'm also thinking about like running. I can remember. Uh, I would maybe go out and want to run five miles, and you would say, "Well, I'm out running 15. I'll run the final five with you because you had some <laughs> goal in mind." So, have you always set black and white goals, or is it more just trying to get better constantly?
2: I think it's um, as I've gotten older, my goals have actually become uh, very different. Of course, as as we all mature, but as a younger person, it was more tactical, like you're describing. I want to get. An A on the test, or I want to run for class president. I remember specifically in eighth grade um, deciding that I was going to take German in high school because it was harder. And who (laughs) does that?
1: I would never do that today. Usually we choose the easier route.
2: (laughs) Yes, I would never do that today. But that's how I thought. And then um, I was going to go to Duke because that's my long shot school and it's hard. And I was going to be an engineer because it's hard.
1: Not an easy major, right?
2: Yeah. So, like I said, as I've gotten older, I've I've learned that there's hard things in life still out there to do. Uh, but I'm choosing to have a little more balance Good. and more free time to enjoy the people in my life.
1: And I want to talk about that in a little bit. But one more leadership question, if I might, because you're just such a tremendous leader. Were there certain influences on you early on, leaders you admired from afar maybe in a book or on TV or in the news? Or were there more influential people you knew who helped you hone your own leadership style?
2: I think it was more of the people in my circle that influenced me the most. Of course, I had uh, heroes in in history and even current day that I admired the president, um, people that you look up to in that way. Right. But But as I look back and I kind of connect the dots backwards, I look at my dad, Setting an example of of how to take care of a family, and he always put my mom and my sister and I first, always.
1: And he was a colonel, is that right?
2: Yes, he retired as a colonel, and um, I, I realize now not everybody's dad did that. Um, and I took most uh, don't most don't <laughs> right. And I took it for granted, but I don't think that was a bad thing. I think that was you know the way our family dynamic worked is that. Mom and the girls were up front, and Dad was in the background.
1: Hmm. That's kind of your leadership style now. I mean, I've seen you on base, and you're always propping up others. Even this podcast today, you're beginning it by propping up me. So that's been a style maybe that you got from your father.
2: I think you're right. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah.
1: Anyone else in addition to your father?
2: Uh, My mom. Um, You know, when I got in trouble, and I think you know the time that I'm referring to in high school, it was— so much easier to tell my dad, but I disappointed my mom. Mm. And I realized that hurt much more than any anything else is disappointing the woman that trusted me. She's always been kind of the moral touchstone of my life and created my spiritual foundation. And still today is the person that I call every day, twice a day.
0: You're listening to the Up To Podcast. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm
1: thankful you're joining us today on the Up To Podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. One of the aspects of podcasting I enjoy the most is the ability to delve into long form discussions without any interruption other than a periodic commentary about one of our partners. I'm grateful that Calfee, Ohio-based law firm, has agreed to partner with us. They have offices throughout Ohio and also in Washington DC, in New York, and Indianapolis too. They are a full service firm, every type of legal need. One example I'll share right now, because so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, is not too long ago, a friend of mine sold his company to a public corporation. And with that came some restrictions and ramifications on his future employment. And to navigate through that properly, he asked my advice. And without hesitation, I recommended Calfee because I knew they'd have the right type of specialist to help him with his particular needs. And my friend continues to rave about that experience. And I'm very grateful that Calfee has agreed to partner with to So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, uh, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee. You can find them at C-A-L-F-E-E dot com or on the UpTo Foundation website.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to the UpTo Podcast.
1: You've mentioned your parents. Clearly, they were a major influence uh, on you, was it always a given that you were going to join the military or was it entirely up to you? Or can you talk through that a little bit?
2: It was always a given in the sense that I, I mentioned I was stubborn and I don't look at that as a negative trait, having a stubbornness to, to stay the course or accomplish a goal or those things that we were talking about earlier. to
1: Sticktutiveness. Um, stick-tutiveness it. Yeah.
2: Yes. Never give up to the point that you're extremely annoying <laughs> to my family. Um, but so, yeah, when I was 10 years old, I woke up and uh, looked around and I said, you know what? This Air Force life is pretty amazing. And even as a 10 year old, I realized it was special. And that's that's when I decided um, I wanted to be in the Air Force. And mm. my dad was in the Air Force, so I want to do what he's doing. And he was a pilot, so I'll be a pilot. And and then I just kind of put my head down and ran toward that
1: goal. Now, you Became the youngest general in the United States Air Force a couple years ago. I guess averages are such that you maybe are no longer the youngest. I'm not sure. (laughs) But at the time, at the time, that was quite a noteworthy accomplishment. When you made it that far, were you ever wondering, like, is there any any doubt in your mind that maybe you don't even share with others? Any self-doubt, like, I can't take it to the next level? Because it seems, as an outsider, like... These goals we talked about, you always set them, you always achieve them. And of course, you're going to make it to Air Force Brigadier General. Uh,
2: Yes. Self-doubt, absolutely. And not self-doubt in terms of my values or, um, you know, who I am, what I stand for, but more like, am I good enough?
1: Yeah. In business, we call that the imposter syndrome. That's. Like, I'm often, like, (laughs) the least accomplished person in the room or in a conversation, including right now, and I'm wondering— how did I get here? When are they going to find out I'm a fraud, and I'm yes. not really deserving of the situation?
2: That's it. And I think uh, never believing that you're you're good enough to be in the caliber of people that that make it to a certain level. So I set goals for myself in terms of um, you know I want to be in the military, I want to be a pilot, and then after that, it was kind of every every promotion board. I always thought I wasn't going to get promoted. Every assignment, I never thought I would get the assignment that I ended up getting. So there was always a surprise element there.
1: Sure. I guess on the one hand, it could be self-doubt. I experienced that. But on the other hand, it could be humility as well, which is not a bad thing. I can remember when you were becoming um, colonel, and I said, okay, how many years until general? And you were like, oh, no, no, no that'll never happen. And then once you became general, I said, okay, when are we going to become the um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? And you're like, no, 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 never. But that's, that's your humility as well as uh, any, any self-doubt. But self-doubt can be real. I'm being silly a little bit. But it, it, it is a challenge to overcome that and then to, to play your best game and to be the best version of yourself because you do deserve to be in that room or to be leading that, that group.
2: That's a great point because I think there's something that happened at my last job at Scott Air Force Base. And you were there for that change of command and and that promotion. But before that, that's when I was in a position where I realized, you know, I know I'm not the smartest person in the room by far. I'm not the funniest at all. Um, I'm not the tallest, (laughs) all those uh, categories of measurements, but I bring something special and it can be the things that you've mentioned already. You know, the fact that I'm a woman, the fact that I'm a pilot, the fact that I listen. I'll bring whatever I bring, which is my strengths, to the organization, and I won't um, discount them.
1: And you deal with pressure really well. Some people can be accomplished, but they don't deal with pressure well. And, in fact, I don't know if you remember John McEnroe used to always famously, like, smash his tennis rackets and yell at the umpire. He was, like, the only person I can remember who seemed to do better once he got angry or stressed out. Most of us do worse once we stress out, we need, to, we need to relax. Everything I think we can do, we can do it better if we're relaxed. So you've been in a lot of intense situations in your career. How, how do you think you deal with pressure? Do you do it well?
2: It's interesting that you say that because as I end this tour here and uh, people start saying goodbye and all the things that happen at the end of, a, of an assignment, um, that's a common theme that everybody has said. About that, you. About me.
1: That you handle it- stress well
2: you're so calm Mm. and you're the right person for the job because you were so calm. And that's why I think God plays a big part in my life and him placing me here. Couldn't have predicted the things that we faced over the last two years, but if I could bring that calmness to the organization that is always dealing with a crisis every couple of weeks, then that's why I'm here. Mm. And help people feel connected to each other and to the mission. Those are the things that That are important to me. That's why I joined the military. And that's what we worked on the last couple of years. And so by creating that connectivity and trust, when the crisis hits, everybody's all in. It's like Band of Brothers, where you're in combat, but you're in combat here in San Antonio, like fighting against the facilities and fighting against the weather, the pandemic, you name it.
1: Now, you mentioned combat. Can you remind me, when you were flying in the Middle East, were you flying out of Kuwait?
2: We flew um, a lot of Saudi Arabia time.
1: Saudi Arabia, okay. And then, um,
2: Al Dhafra is where uh, the UAE is where I was um,
1: and didn't, most recently. Didn't Wolf Blitzer interview you yes. one time?
2: Yes. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you remember that.
1: Well, of course I do. I think, I think <laughs> the situation was how ironic that a U.S. pilot was flying on behalf of freedom and, you know, defending liberty over countries that didn't let at the time women. You know, show their faces, or even uh, I think drive cars. Wasn't that kind of the storyline?
2: It was. It was. It was two thousand and three, right before OIF kicked off, and
1: What's he came OIF?
2: To, uh Operation Iraqi Freedom.
1: Well, it's good we got this far without an acronym that I didn't <laughs> know, and I know the military has a ton of acronyms. So thank you, at least thus far. So it, it was uh, Iraqi Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom.
2: Yeah, that was a, a pretty amazing time from a professional point of view. Um, Of course, we know the history and the things that happened um, after that. But at the time, it was something that professionally we'd been preparing for, for the first quarter of my career. And uh, to be there um, when it started and with my husband, we were deployed together.
1: Because sometimes you were based in different countries, right? You weren't always in the same place. That must have been very difficult. I can't even imagine.
2: Yeah, it's it's been challenging. However... We look at it a little bit differently, I think. From the outside, it looks like, oh my gosh, you were apart so many years. Um, But we look at it as something we both wanted. And we both wanted to serve. We both wanted to be as helpful as we could be uh, to the airmen around us. Mm -hmm. And we loved each other enough (laughs) to communicate to each other that we could be apart, but still have a professional life and a a strong marriage.
1: Well, our military is fortunate to have people like you and your your husband, Dave, who also is a colonel, uh, choosing uh, to be in the armed forces. I mean, you could have chosen different paths and succeeded quite well, but we're all uh, benefiting from from those decisions you both made. Can I uh, move a little bit beyond the military, if you could even possibly mentally do that? And maybe the answer is uh, within your career, but what are you doing, General Enderman? What are you doing when you feel most alive? What Gives you the most exhilarating kind of rumble in your belly.
2: <laughs> well, instantly, when you said that, I thought of my nieces and nephews. When I'm with those kids, and they're almost young adults, mm. um, that's when I feel uh, happiest. That's when I feel um, most centered mm-hmm. and most present in that moment. Yeah, is when I'm kid, with them. kids
1: will do that, especially if they're family members. And that actually uh, relates to my next question. Do you ever think about who you're role modeling for? I I don't think I ever told you this, but one time when I was visiting, I think it was Scott Air Force Base, and I was staying in the um, on-base uh, hotel or guest house, and the clerk was checking me in, and she was a young woman in the military. And I kind of boasted that I was here to be involved in your appointment. And I said, maybe that could be you someday. And she, her eyes lit up like, oh, no, never. I'll never be a general lenderman. Like, do you ever think about who maybe you don't even know is following how you behave and how you lead and how you treat others?
2: Wow, that's a great question.
1: I mean, you really are uh, even if you don't try to be, you are a role model for many people and I just wondered if you ever thought about that.
2: You know, I, I hadn't thought about it until, again, going back to the last assignment when I'm in a wing command position and almost immediately I had people, I'll say people, because it was both men and women, folks that saw something in me that they hadn't seen in anybody else. And it gave them courage to be fully themselves. Mm-hmm. And it was, I remember an Indian woman, she was captain, and she just said, you know, thank you. I've never seen anybody that looks like you, meaning you're a woman, you're in a command position. And I, I thank you for, for being that role model for us. And then there's African-American men, many different types of people that We're looking for somebody that looked like them, not just physically, but how they treated people, how they led. And I realized I did that, too. I looked for people that that uh, that didn't have to be big and boisterous to be effective, that cared about the the men and women around them.
1: Meek um, is not weak. I always say that. Meek is not weak.
2: That's it. And so I got I got my first real experience with that in my last command. And it has been exponential here. There's
1: Tell me more about that. What do you mean you had your first experience in your last command?
2: With people who were bold and brave enough to come up and say, you look and sound and act different. And I admire that. Mm. And thank you. Tremendous. And so that's when I realized, you know what? If anything else, I'm staying in the Air Force as long as they'll let me so I can
1: I think they'll they'll somebody stay like that. Yeah. Do you think this is a burden, this... Um role modeling. Is it a burden or is it a blessing?
2: Oh, blessing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I look at it just, you know, whatever I can do to help people and um, inspire them for a day or a minute. And we've had lots of opportunities to do that, especially lately with the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also the other issues that are happening in our country with race and justice and um, equality. People want to see leadership, Speak about these. They, we, they want to have that difficult conversation. I think so many times in the past, especially in the military, we're taught to be apolitical, right. you know, and, and that's the right thing. We don't take sides in that area, but that doesn't mean you don't have a conversation about these issues that aren't necessarily—they become political, but they're human issues, mm-hmm. um, they're humanity issues. <laughs> they're they're in our communities. They're 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 being talked about in the dorms. I'd rather them talk to leadership about it so we can hear what's on their mind.
1: From your perspective, do you think race relations are better inside the military, or are they better in general San Antonio community? Because I feel like the military has often been a testing ground for social change and acceptance. I know some would say they were behind in some areas of change, but I also think you led us in, in some of those changes.
2: This is a difficult question for me to answer as a Caucasian woman, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think you'd never know what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, just like anything else. Of
1: course, right. But you have an, an ability to observe, and I'm sure you've had people under your command or above you of different races, and I think also there's a chance that as a female, you may have been the victim of any sort of bias or even age bias. I can remember myself as a white male, but I had age bias issues when I was in certain roles as a young person. So maybe my question is beyond just race, but, yeah, race is forefront.
2: I think I think the military, the, one of the wonderful things about the military is it does provide opportunities. Not everybody starts at the same time. Place because we all come from different socioeconomic and educational backgrounds. Sure. But the military provides you opportunities to get an education, to have experiences, to be a leader. Uh, so I think, in that sense, is it better or worse? It all depends mm. on where you sit and what your life experiences and your work experiences have been. Because just like on the outside, you can have a bad boss, you can have bad coworkers, and I say bad, quote unquote. But right. We're not perfect by any stretch. And we're, we're learning those areas that are still not the way they need to be. But we're talking about it, which I think is important. And we all sign the dotted line. We all raise our right hand. And we're defending a constitution, not a person, not a, mm-hmm. a specific um, political party. And I think that unifies all of us to a large degree. But like I said, there are still pockets of problems and challenges, just like there are outside the military that we continue hmm. to work on.
1: Interesting. Well, what are you most excited about right now? What What uh, lights you up when you think about it, in addition to appearing on a, a podcast like this?
2: <laughs> I love that question because, you know, I, I am most excited about finishing this command, leaving it in a better place, I hope. Awesome. I pray that the people that have started the command with us are, are finishing it stronger and they feel more connected to each other and the mission. And I'm excited to have an opportunity to stay here in San Antonio and further develop the relationships that I started here while I'm not in command to reconnect with people that I haven't been able to spend as much time with and develop those deeper relationships. And then uh, my family, I think Dave and I have had 10 years of a lot of time apart, and this is going to be a chance for us to start our 50s 25 years after we we met and kind of get to know each other again.
1: Well, you, you, you've you certainly earned that time to uh, have some quality time with your, your husband and your family. Have you um, thought much about, and I don't even know if you're allowed to talk about it, like a, a professional life beyond the military, or do we not even talk about those types of things?
2: Oh, we should talk about those things. Unfortunately, I haven't. Mm. <laughs> I need to put time into that because um, it's going to be here before you know it. I have fewer years left than I have behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have great programs in the military, their transition programs. You've worn a certain uniform for 25, 30 years. You have a certain vernacular. You have a certain way of doing business. And you kind of have to deprogram yourself and see what's possible. And one of my husband's old bosses said he's going to go find his passion. And I kind of love that idea
1: mm-hmm. of
2: you get a second career or, or a third or fourth career, but you get another chance to kind of redefine your life. And I'm looking forward to doing that. It's exciting. Yeah, I know it's going to be hard, though, because of all the things I just said. I mean, it's the only life I've known.
1: Beyond military groups, are you asked to speak in, like, business communities or in schools or with students, universities? Are you are you doing much of that? And if so, um, what types of advice do you give to, you know, the younger professionals who are starting their career out? I've been really amazed during now three seasons of this uh, show— I hear from so many young professionals. And I thought it would be my peer group, my age group and up, our age group, who were most often listening. But it's the younger people who tell me they love hearing these life lessons at the beginning of their careers so that they can maybe go on a a, a positive path uh, rather than reflecting backwards like usually people our age and older do. So can you share maybe some of your favorite career lessons?
2: Yeah. There's a book, it's called Letters to My Younger Self. It's people of all ages, young people, um, Olympic athletes Mm -hmm. who are 19 years old, but have spent, uh, you know, 11 of those 19 years in training. And then you have the folks that are on the other end of their their lives, like Oprah, and they're writing to themselves. That's one of my favorite books, because I kind of think about that when I go in and talk to the different groups, like you mentioned, and San Antonio has given me a lot of opportunities that I'm so grateful for to connect with all of those types of people, like you just said. Mm -hmm. It's schools, it's the women's chamber, it's the business community, it's nonprofits, it's the military, Mm -hmm. um, elected officials.
1: It's amazing you mentioned that book, excuse me, because every episode I ask the guest, and Dave, our producer, will confirm this, I ask if you could go back and talk to the 21-year-old version of yourself what advice would you give the younger Laura? And it sounds like this book is about that. So what advice would you give your (laughs) younger self?
2: You know, I would, gosh, Adam, I want to say something really profound, but the words that just came to me, it would be trust yourself.
1: Trust your instinct to pursue something or what what are you getting at there?
2: We touched on it earlier, self-doubt.
1: Overcome the self-doubt.
2: Maybe you're not overcoming it, but you're, Learning more and more to listen to yourself. Mm. And I call them angel messages. They're coming to you all the time. Most of them we listen to, I hope, but some we discard because we we don't understand what they are. But to me, a lot of prayer, you know, starting our day with prayer and, and throughout the day, uh, but listening to those angel thoughts that are coming, that are telling you, you know, where you should go, what you need to do, even providing the words that are coming out of your mouth. Like when I start the day with prayer, then... First of all, the day is just much better. But the things that are challenging to me, like I've got to write this thing and I really don't want to write it and it's really hard. Mm -hmm. The words just flow Mm. and they're better than I could. I'm like, I don't even know where that came from. Awesome. Those are the ones that kind of hit the home run.
1: And that's the calmness that people say you have. You're learning how to manage the stress and you're perfect for the role as they've told you. And I guess those are the tools you put into practice, the prayer and uh, listening to the angels that allow others to believe you're calm, even if you maybe weren't. yeah. I guess the last thing I wanted to say, Laura, is in America, those of us who are not in the military, um, we can admire from afar or just read current events. How do you think uh, Americans can better understand the importance of service and duty and responsibility? Because I think that only in the military do those character traits really, really, really come out. Is there some better way all of us can appreciate what our service men and women do for us?
2: I think I, I know what you're asking, and I think it's hard. It's a little bit hard for me to answer because I know there's a lot of folks, especially your listeners, that may not live near an installation. Right. Um, if there's no so base around us, they just don't know anybody in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you wanted to get inspired and truly understand what the ethos is about the military, I would recommend the band of brothers,
1: the series, the series. Yes. If you
2: granted it's, it's many decades ago, but the core of that movie, uh, the sacrifices that these men at the time all men mm-hmm. um, make for each other. And, and I always tell my team, we all join the service for a different reason. And some of it's uh, very patriotic. Some of it's out of economic necessity. Mm -hmm. They have nowhere else to go. They want an education. But for those that join and stay, we all stay for the same reason, which is for each other. Mm. And I would venture to say that across the board. You're a part of something bigger than yourself. You're connected to a society of folks that put the country and the flag above anything else.
1: Right. It helps us understand a little bit at least getting inside the mind of one particular leader in one particular branch. So I'm grateful that you did it, and I know uh, others will be as well. So I'm thanking you for trusting me to appear today. It's been a terrific session, and I can't believe how fast the 50 minutes have gone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow, when I played back the episode with General Lenderman, I really enjoyed how authentic she was with her sharing. It's really a rare opportunity to get this candid peek inside the life of an active duty general. There's plenty of former military officers we might see on TV or hear a quote from, but it was really tremendous that she shared so much while in active duty. Uh, Also, just how she emphasized being a part of something bigger than yourself is an idea a lot of us can't relate to. I'm not even sure if I ever have, if I'm being truthful, but she shared that everyone in the military feels that way. Just awesome. Five takeaways. Number one, I thought it was interesting that trusting and transparent relationships are vital to General Lenderman's success. Even in a military context where chain of command is in place, relationships still do matter. Number two, her say-do gap and how she works to decrease the gap between what people say they do and what they actually do. Number three, General Lenderman believes that people can become better leaders if time is spent developing those leadership skills. I thought that was a positive observation. Could be debated, but definitely don't want to counter her qualified views on the matter. Number four, Don't discount your strengths, she said. Everyone brings something to the table. Everyone has something to offer, and we should feel good about those unique talents. And finally, I liked how as leaders, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about the tough issues, she reminded us. And actually,
0: doing so is required of the most effective leaders. Hey, Adam, I got another one for you. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Dave. I really appreciated that General Lenderman talked about leaving the job and the people around her in a better place than she found them. That's
1: tremendous for all of us to keep in
0: mind. Oh, and one more. She said, trust yourself.
1: Listen to yourself. Trust what she calls angel messages. Really good. Adam, do we have any
0: listener mail today?
1: We do, Dave. Dave. I got some really interesting feedback from a listener in New England who's both a busy mother and also an author. And her comment to me was about the Ted Suter episode, that it was a great episode and an important reminder to keep looking to the future, no matter how uphill it may seem sometimes. Ted thought there was all kinds of positive things coming around the bend. Right. And she said that it's a good reminder to keep forging forward. The world is a tricky place, especially right now. We all need reminders to remain centered in kindness and faith and positive optimism. Wonderful. Please, to all of you, I would love to hear from you. I welcome all feedback, positive, constructive, negative. We just want to know what you're thinking of our show.
0: Last week, Adam, you asked people to send negative feedback about me. Did you get any of that? I wouldn't get that. You (laughs) would get that. All right. Well, I I didn't get
1: any. (laughs) Okay, good. Good, good. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To podcast.